Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, February 16th, 2010. I don't know if you can hear it in my voice. I am exhausted today. Uh, my youngest daughter, um, my youngest child, the one who's 13 going on 35... She went on her junior high trip to Washington, D.C. over the President's Day weekend. Yeah, she was supposed to get in last night. Well, she got in really early in the morning. We'll talk about that in a second. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your exhausted servant in Jesus Christ today. <laughs> and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy little things being said out there about God. And unfortunately, those crazy things that are being said, many times are being said from Christian pulpits, and Christian pastors should know better. And uh, so what do we do here? We compare what people say in the name of God to the Word of God, and I'm not exempt from the exercise. I am I am not deity, even not even close. I am a sinner <laughs> saved by grace. And so as a result of it, I challenge you and encourage you to compare what I say in the name of God to the Word of God. Uh, compare it. And uh, if you find that something's lacking or off, would love to hear from you. And uh, you know, send me your email. We'll, go, we'll work at it that way. I've been known to at times go, well, nope, missed that one. Had to change my mind about that. And I've done it so much in the past, I have no problem working forward and going, yeah, maybe I missed that one too. Anyway, so that, this program's all about discernment, all about the gospel, really. You know, the, the axe I'm really trying to grind here is uh, just looking for opportunities to tell you the great news of what Jesus Christ has done for you and about the forgiveness of sins that he is offering through his vicarious and penal substitutionary death on the cross for your sins. I just, if I don't get an opportunity to tell you about that, like I just did, um, then I don't even want to be on the radio. I mean, the, the the real reason I want to do that is to announce, proclaim, defend this great, great news of the free forgiveness of sins and pardon won by Christ. All right, today's program, by the way, did I mention I was tired? Okay, so here's the deal. She was supposed to get in late last night. It snowed in Indiana all day yesterday. Um. Snow and airplanes apparently don't mix, and um, or uh, snow causes airplanes to fly sh uh, um, slower. I, I'm not sure how to describe the issue here. 
Anyway, so um, so I stayed up most of the night, and um, and her plane finally came in after a pretty lengthy delay, and, uh, and I promptly, after um, getting her home, tried to uh, get to sleep immediately, and it just dawn came so quickly. <laughs> anyway, I've 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 discussed my creeping decrepitude before here on the program. And that's the thing is, is that um, when you, uh, as you get older, the routine is really important. And so um, getting to bed at the same hour, waking up at the same hour, doing the same things in the same order uh, every day really is a, is a kind of a lifesaver. And then when you nearly pull an all nighter, it just messes everything up. And so I, if I sound like I'm tired, it's because I am. I feel like I'm doing radio through some kind of a mental fog. And I don't have a, a, a mental defogger. I'm thinking that sleep will be the solution here. So anyway, so if I, if I, if while doing our sermon review, if I miss something or during uh, one of uh, our uh, segments today, I, I kind of m- miss a great opportunity. Well, the... <sighs> <laughs> Yeah, it, uh, if if my brain is an is a twelve cylinder vehicle, then today I might be like working off a of seven or eight cylinders. We'll just work through it. Just work through it. That's all we can do. That's all we can do. All right, today's program got some interesting stuff lined up for you today. Uh, y'all know Tim Challies. Have you ever read Tim Challies' blog? Tim Challies, uh, he this guy eats books. I, that's the only thing I'm con- I'm absolutely convinced that Tim Challies. He reads and uh, reviews and just devours more books uh, in a day, you know, in a week than most people uh, uh, will read in in a year, two, three years time. And uh, he has a blog where he does a lot of book reviews. And Tim Challies is uh, is basically kind of your middle of the road, nice guy, Christian uh, theologian. He's an author himself. And uh, his blog is really well respected. Willie, Willie, well respected. <clears throat> Let me try this again. His blog is very well read, and he is really well respected. I think I got it right that time. Anyway, so um, when somebody as non-confrontational, if you would, as uh, Tim Challies takes off the gloves, we take note here at Fighting for the Faith. And uh, Tim Challies uh, today posted his review of Brian McLaren's new book, and wow, <laughs> it's a barn burner. I mean, it was enough to wake me out of my mental fog and make me stand up and go, whoa, somebody put a bee under Tim Challies bonnet. So we're going to be reading his review of Brian McLaren's book today here at Fighting for the Faith. And uh, take note, again, what's interesting is, is I've never really known Tim Challies in his years of blogging to uh, t- take the type of tone that you would expect to hear from from the late Walter Martin. Um, that, but yet that's the tone he takes and that's the and that's the uh, stand he takes uh, in his review of Brian McLaren's new book, A New Kind of Christianity. So we're going to be listening to that. We're going to be reading that today. And then uh, I'm going to be playing audio from... Brian McLaren's uh, video uh, on the Ooze TV that just came out today uh, regarding question number one, what is the overarching narrative of the uh, biblical uh, story? Uh, 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 and uh, 
listen to that and him and Spencer Burke kind of wax eloquent there and chime in as as uh as needed and then we're going to uh take a look at this is depending on time um i want i want to go down a bunny trail here and that is a you know by the way in his new book uh, a new kind of christianity i mean mclaren just hangs all his cards out there for everyone to see and uh you know basically he affirms that he thinks marcus borg is a christian and Marcus Borg is uh, probably one of the you know, most outspoken liberal heretics on the planet. And uh, we might go down that bunny trail today or tomorrow. That kind of depends. And then, yes, we had some unfinished business. We have some unfinished business from yesterday. And that is is that I want to play for you a soundbite from uh, Rick Warren from his, uh, from his keynote uh, at, on, at the Radicalis Conference on uh, c- uh, Radical Compassion and something uh, we didn't get this far into the keynote in my review yesterday with uh, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller and just asking the question, does Rick Warren practice Roman Catholic monastic mysticism? Got a soundbite? Want to listen? I want you to listen to. I have an idea. I have some ideas about what's going on here. And, uh, and, you know, we'll chime in appropriately. And then our sermon review today, I thought it would be appropriate. You know, since I've made the claim, you know, rather than cutting up, uh, Driscoll's, uh, Mark Driscoll's keynote from the Radicalist Conference, I'm just going to play it. I, you know, the, and it's a, it's ridiculously good and, uh, excited for you all to hear it. And, uh, in his, uh, in his keynote, Mark Driscoll flat out contradicts, um, Brian McLaren. Now, this kind of leads to the question: Did did Driscoll set out purposely to contradict? Uh, not Brian McLaren. Uh, Rick Warren. Did he set out purposely to contradict Rick Warren's uh, keynote, which, by the way, was just prior to his? Nope, I don't think so. Uh, I just I think that um, Mark Driscoll holds to a different theology than Rick Warren does, and as a result of it, Mark Driscoll laid out his theology, spoke forthrightly about it, and just automatically, without without even trying, he ended up contradicting Rick Warren. And so I'm going to point that out for you all today and would love for you to listen to it and you know get your feedback on it. And uh, we'll go from there because here's the deal. I, I think Rick Warren is a closet liberal. And you're sitting there going, wait a second, Chris. He affirms different things. You know, he affirms different doctrines and stuff like that. I understand that, but not, you know, you have to understand the doc, the uh, the definition of liberal that I'm holding to. Um, Rick Warren basically um, shifts the message. He he, even though he says he doesn't, by trying to make it relevant to culture, he does. And over and over and over again, what comes out of Rick Warren's mouth is pietism. It, moralistic pietism and not sanctification that flows from the gospel, but really uh, just stark naked uh, pietistic self-righteousness, which, by the way, is exactly what liberalism is into, except for they're into a the socialized uh, social gospel version of it. I think Rick Warren has a liberal theology that embraces or that is, how should I say this, target markets uh, his church to... Orange County, Southern Southern California, Orange County conservative uh, saddleback Sam types, uh, but at the same time, his theology. It, it, here's the deal: you can't teach the truth. You cannot teach sound biblical doctrine 
by twisting God's word. It's just not possible. You can't do it. And so as a result of it, Rick Warren, in his incessant need to be relevant and constantly twisting God's word in order to craft messages that are, quote, uh, appealing to seekers, um, he's compromised way more than he even realizes. And uh, so, you know, and what's gone at this point? Well, what we're seeing here is, is sound biblical doctrine slowly but surely eroding away in Rick Warren's theology. It can't but happen because you can't continue to mangle and twist God's word the way he does and expect your theology and sound biblical doctrine to remain intact. It can't. So anyway, we'll be talking about that today. So lots to do. Did I mention that I was not quite um, awake? Anyway, so with that, we're going to dive into our program proper and uh, we'll do the vintage news music. From the Tim Challies blog, Tuesday, February 16th, 2010, a new kind of Christianity is the headline. And I need to warn you all ahead of time, um, Tim Challies, he opens up his this uh, review of Brian McLaren's book uh, with what some would consider to be... Um, uh, let's just say a less than beautiful analogy. He's talking about prostitution here. So I just want to let you know that ahead of time. Uh, but Tim Challies has taken the gloves off in regard to uh, Brian McLaren. And I'm reading now from Tim Challies' blog. It says, Early in George Orwell's iconic 1984 is a particularly haunting scene. Winston, the hero of the story, is confessing to his diary a sexual encounter with a prostitute. Though Big Brother rig- rigidly controls even sexual union, and though sex is viewed as a slightly disgusting minor operation, like having an enema, still Big Brother cannot remove from humanity the desire and the need for intimacy. One evening, Winston spots a prostitute near a train station. Quote, she had a young face, he writes, quote, painted very thick. It was really the paint that appealed to me, the whiteness of it, like a mask in the bright red lips. Uh, partly, uh, party women never paint their faces. In a society where abject fear and loneliness are the norm, Winston craves the intimacy of sex. But as he goes into this woman's apartment and lies with her, He turns up a lamp, casting a bright light on her face, and immediately he sees that the appearance of beauty was a lie. What he had suddenly seen in the lamplight was that the woman was old. The paint was plastered so thick on her face that it looked as though it might crack like a cardboard mask. There were streaks of white in her hair. But the truly dreadful detail was that her mouth had fallen a little open, revealing nothing except a cavernous blackness. She had no teeth at all. But despite his horror, his revulsion, Winston continues. In his diary, he writes, quote, When I saw her in the light, she was uh, quite an old woman, 50 years old at least. But I went ahead and did it just the same. Though the woman loses all sexual appeal, Winston continues in this act. He continues because though his desire is quenched, uh, he still sex is an act of rebellion. By sleeping with this prostitute, he is engaging in an act of heartfelt rebellion against Big Brother. 
It wasn't too long ago that I wrote about Brian McLaren and got in trouble. Reflecting on seeing him speak at a nearby church, I suggested that he appears to love Jesus but hate God. Based on immediate and furious reaction, I quickly retracted that statement. I should not have done so. I believe it then and I believe it now. And if it was true then, how much more true is it upon the release of his latest tome, A New Kind of Christianity? In this book, we finally see where McLaren's journey has taken him. It has taken him into outright, rank, unapologetic apostasy. He hates God, period. By the way, that was not me. That's Tim Challies. Tim Challies says that Brian McLaren's journey has taken him into rank, unapologetic apostasy and that he hates God, period. It's time for a new quest, writes McLaren, launched by new questions and a quest across denominations around the world, a quest for new ways to believe and new ways to live and serve faithfully in the way of Jesus, a quest for a new kind of Christian faith. McLaren frames the book around 10 questions that are transforming the faith. They cut to the very heart of the faith, foundational in every way. He asks... The narrative question, what is the overarching story of the Bible? The authority question, how should the Bible be understood? The God question, is God violent? The Jesus question, who is Jesus and why is he important? The gospel question, what is the gospel? The church question, what uh, what do we uh, do about the church? The sex question, can we find a way to address human sexuality without fighting about it? The future question, can we find a better way of viewing the future? The pluralism question, how should followers of Jesus relate to people of other religions? The what do we do now question, how can we translate our quest into action? His purpose, he insists, is not to answer the questions, but to provide responses to them. Answers indicate finality. Responses indicate conversation and openness. The responses I offer are not intended as a smash in tennis delivered forcefully with a lot of topspin in an effort to win the game and create a loser. Rather, they are offered as a gentle serve or a lob. The primary goal is to start the interplay, to get things rolling, to invite your reply. Remember, our goal is not debate and division yielding hate or a new state, but rather questioning that leads to conversation and friendship on the new quest. But that's mere semantics, says Challies. Whether answering or responding, whether saying tomato or tomato, what McLaren does through these ten questions is to completely rewrite the Christian faith. His gentle lobs rip the very heart out of the Christian faith. At the center of his remix of the faith is the claim that most Christians look at their faith through a flawed platonic greco-roman lens instead of through a biblical jewish lens quote god's unfolding drama is not a narrative shaped by the six lines in the greco-roman scheme of perfection fall condemnation salvation and heavenly perfection or eternal perdition it, it has a different storyline entirely it's a story about the downside of progress a story of human foolishness and God's faithfulness. The human turn toward rebellion and God's turn towards reconciliation. The human intention towards evil and God's intention to overcome evil with good. 
this Greco-Roman god, the one that most Christians believe in, is a damnable idol defended by many well-meaning but misguided scholars and fire-breathing preachers. McLaren plays the all-too-typical everyone-else-has-it-all-wrong card. It turns out that most of us, all but a handful of the enlightened intellectuals as it happens, have been reading the Bible through the distorted lens of the Greco-Roman narrative. This narrative produced many false dualisms, an air of superiority, and a false distinction between those who were in and those who were out. These three marks of false narrative have so impacted our faith that we can hardly see past them. But Brian is willing and eager to play Moses, leading us out of the Egypt of our own ignorance and into the promised land of his new Christianity. It would take a lot more time than I'd be willing to give it to offer a point-by-point explanation of what responses McLaren proposes for each of the ten questions or to document the ramifications of his new theology. He denies the fall. He denies original sin. He denies human depravity. He denies hell, and that's just in the first few pages. Needless to say, all of this leads him to a radically unbiblical view of the cross and the purpose and work of Jesus. Though he insists that he considers the Bible inspired, though certainly not in a traditional sense, he also says that most Christians have read it wrong, having viewed it as a kind of constitution in which God gives spirit-breathed, inerrant revelation of himself. I'm recommending, this is McLaren writing, quote, I'm recommending we read the Bible as an inspired library. This inspired library preserves, presents, and inspires an ongoing vigorous conversation with and about God, a living, vital, civil argument into which we are all invited and through which God is revealed. After all, revelation doesn't simply happen in statements. It happens in conversations and arguments that can take place within the uh, um, and among communities of people who share the same essential questions across generations. Revelation accumulates in the relationships, interactions, and interplay between statements. What does the Bible accomplish then? What does it teach us about God? Quote, McLaren speaking, Scripture faithfully reveals the evolution of our ancestors' best attempts to communicate their successive best understandings of God. As human capacity grows to conceive of a higher and wiser view of God, each new vision is faithfully preserved in Scripture like fossils in layers of sediment. The Bible is an ongoing conversation about God's character in which humans come to progressively more accurate understandings of who he is. There's no reason to think that any of them actually had it right. His reinterpretations of Job and Romans are a sight to behold. (laughs) Yes, they are. So muddled and so fabricated that they become absolutely nonsensical. There is deliberate ignorance at work here, writes Challies. The arrogance of it all is stunning. McLaren is angrier than he has been before and more scornful. Still, though, he presents his ideas coated with the veneer of a false humility. But handily, he builds into the book the means he he will use to answer his critics. He will simply accuse his detractors of having this Greco-Roman understanding of the faith. We poor fundamentalists cannot be among the new kind of Christians until we have been enlightened to understand that the Bible, though an entirely new narrative in, in an entirely new narrative structure, only then will this all become clear. Until then, 
more to be pitied are we than any men. Here in a new kind of Christianity, it's as if McLaren is screaming, I hate God at the top of his lungs. And swarms of Christians are looking at him with admiration saying, see how that guy loves God. I don't know what McLaren could do to make the situation more clear. In fact, his book is nearly indistinguishable from many of the deconversion narratives that are all the rage today. Compare it with Bart Ehrman's God's Problem, and you'll see many of the same arguments and the same misgivings. You'll find, though that Ehrman is at least more honest, he at least has the integrity to walk away from the faith altogether than rather than reinventing God in his own image. McLaren says he would prefer atheism over belief in the God so many of us see in Scripture. Well, he is not far off. This new kind of extreme makeover God edition Christianity is no Christianity at all. It is not a faith made in the image of Jesus Christ, but a faith made in the image of a man who despises God and who is hell-bent on dragging others along with him as he becomes his own God. As Winston turned up the light, he saw that that prostitute for what she really was. Here, McLaren turns up the light, and we see that his faith, what his Christianity really is. We see it in all of its toothless, caked-on horror. This new kind of Christianity is simply paganism behind a thick coat of false humility and biblical language. It is an expression of rebellion against God far more than its pursuit of new intimacy with with the Creator. And like Orwell's whore, many will go to this book seeking intimacy with God only to content themselves with rebellion against him. For each is satisfying in its own way. Wow. <laughs> I think Chally's completely took the gloves off there and i think he's spot on he's spot on i've been reading through uh my copy of brian mclaren's book and by the way um for my bookmark for mclaren's book i am keeping the receipt the receipt is the bookmark because what i really think this book is all about is mclaren making money making a lot of money while he tries to create can basically tell people that he's creating a new kind of Christianity. And by the way, Challies is absolutely right. McLaren does not believe that humanity is fallen. In talking about you know how we should really you know see the biblical narrative, he actually sees humanity as ascending, okay? And um uh, let me read this from page 50 of his book. Um he says the biblical text never even hints that uh, that it entails an ontological fall from platonic being to transcendent state down to aristotelian becoming into base story rather it is the first stage of ascent as human beings progress from the life of hunter gatherers to the life of agriculturalists and beyond their journey could be pictured like this and mclaren is literally created like what looks like stairs ascending and so humanity didn't fall We've ascended from hunter-gatherers to nomadic herders to agriculturalists to city dwellers to empire dwellers. And by the way, I need to point this out. If you understand emergence theory um, and Hegelian and their Hegelian way of looking at life, I mean, what's what McLaren buys into is a Hegelian idealistic philosophy. 
is that there's a stage that's coming that we're that's emerging that's beyond empire dwellers and it has a lot it, it really is rather than there being empires we're you know they're trying to give birth to a global community uh, where where there is no more where there are no more empires and nations but we're all one people one religion who who all worship the one god that's where this is all heading and McLaren is the one greasing the skids toward this globalism and this global religion. Okay. So we didn't, we didn't fall into sin. Instead, we've ascended. Now, the problem is, is that with each ascent up the ladder, with each step that we've ascended, okay, there's been more, let's just say that our capacity for bad things. I mean, he wouldn't say that we're really sinful, but you know, some of the bad things that have happened are you know, have gotten worse. And so kind of the so what's happened is is that uh the Bible in his way of viewing things is really a narrative of, you know, as we've progressed, not fallen, but ascended, uh there's been a there's been downsides to each progressive step. So um, you know, when we went from being hunter gatherers to nomadic herders, then we, we expressed, experienced the downside of shame and fear. And then when we made the, the ascent up from nomadic herders to agriculturalists, this is where we see in the Cain and Abel story, um, murder comes on the scene. And then what happens is, is that as we ascended from agriculturalists to city dwellers, well, there was corruption and violence. And, and so, you know, you know that that that's dealt with as shown you know metaphorically or allegorically in the Noah flood narrative and then we went to empire builders and what we see the downside of empire builders is oppression and genocide my question for mclaren is is that if we've ascended rather than fallen into sin death and the devil um what's going to be the downside to globalism I mean, if the downside of being empire dwellers is that we're that you know that the is the evil of oppression and genocide, what's going to be the downside of globalism when it finally emerges? I, I mean, we're we're talking mass genocide, mass oppression of those who don't go along with the globalist uh, with the globalist way of thinking that's supposed to be emerging. I mean. I, this isn't good news at all. If McLaren's right and uh, we're actually heading towards something and something's something greater than empire builders is going to appear on the human scene that we're going to evolve upward. I mean, uh, we better run for the hills because the whatever evil is going, whatever the downside of that's going to be, is going to be way worse than oppression and genocide that we saw from empire builders. Anyway, just my two cents. We're up on our first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, my email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. 
We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Welcome to the first emergent bank of postmodernism. How can I be of service to you today, ma'am? Ever since you people changed your name to the first emergent bank of postmodernism, I haven't been able to figure out what the correct balance is in my account. Every time I log into your website, I can't even figure out very basic information like what checks have cleared or whether my deposits have been credited to my account. It's like everything is shrouded in a mysterious haze. Oh, I see. So you're here because you'd like to have a conversation about this. No. I'd just like to know the current balance of my checking account, please, because my rent is due tomorrow. <clears throat> well, let me pull that information up for you. Ah, uh, yes. <clears throat> I see. That is very intriguing. What's intriguing? Is there something wrong? Am I overdrawn? What is my balance, please? Uh, well, ma'am, it appears that your balance may or may not be what you think it should be. What's that supposed to mean? Just look on the computer screen and tell me the number where it says account balance. Well, ma'am, I would never be so arrogant as to presume that I could actually know with any degree of certainty what the balance of your account is. What, what does arrogance have to do with telling me my bank account balance? Just read me the number. Well, you see, that's just it. Uh, a specific number is so final, so narrow, so limiting. This idea that your bank balance is merely a fixed and limited numerical truth is just an artifact from the modern society. Well, we've moved on beyond modernism, and we're now experiencing the liberation and the freedom of postmodern ways of interpreting the truth. Are you out of your mind? Well, don't you see? It's not the number that is so important. That is merely a cold and detached way of understanding truth. To say that any of us can know what truth is is nothing more than pure arrogance on our part. Who are we to say that we can know truth? We feel it's more important to humbly approach the question of account balances by having community conversations about whether or not you earn the money in your bank account in a way that doesn't support the theocapitalist suicide machine. It's more important to ask you to think about what is the best use of this money in your account rather than just give you a fixed figure. This conversation is pointless. Look, right here, according to my calculations, I should have $2,356 in my checking account. Well, is it in there or not? You may or may not be correct in your assertion. Um, some people who are sensitive to these sorts of limiting ideas may or may not agree with your calculations, while others who may or may not be smarter than me may believe that your calculations regarding your bank balance are overly influenced by a male-dominated Western culture. That's it. I'm closing my account. 
you give me my $2,356 right now. That was a disgusting display of pride and arrogance. <laughs> Keep that up and I will have to call the manager and have you thrown out of here. Great idea. You call your manager because I want to close my account right now. Well, <clears throat> I would call my manager, but I'm not certain that she's even here. Are you tired of lousy service? When you need help with repairs around the house, Angie's List members will help you decide which service companies to trust and which ones to avoid. Kiplinger said Angie's List is a virtual backyard fence with talk about the dry cleaner, the drywaller, and everything in between. With Angie's List, you get access to great local reviews on their website, live support through their call center, the award-winning Angie's List magazine, and access to their complaint resolution team, as well as discounts from highly rated service companies. If you'd like to find out more about Angie's List and their unbiased reviews of service companies and doctors in your area, then call them toll-free at 877-225-0478. Again, that's 877-225-0478. Call Angie's List today, and you'll be done with lousy service forever. All right, we're back. Warning, I can combat heresy in my sleep. <laughs> oh, that's stupid. Oh, man. All right, need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means that uh, we depend upon your generous financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you. You can support us a few ways. In fact, uh, we recommend you consider a few of them. Um, and, and right now, we're still in the middle of our campaign to uh, have a thousand of our listeners join the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. And by signing up, you are basically signing up to have a mere $6.95 taken out of your account on a monthly basis. Well, that's really nothing. And uh, once we get to a thousand listeners who've joined, and we're over halfway there now to our goal, uh, then uh, then that will guarantee that on a monthly basis we're able to meet our budgeted expenses, you know, so that we can continue to bring this program to you. So if you haven't joined the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew, we encourage you to do so. And the way you do that is by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you're there. Click on one of the buttons that says join our crew and then pay close attention because at the end of the sign up process, there's a screen that shows up that says with a button at the bottom that says click here to access the Pirate Christian Cove, a growing treasure trove of theological resources designed to help you grow deeper in sound Christian doctrine, Christ centered theology and Christ centered apologetics. Good stuff. And uh, that's our way of saying thank you to you for joining our crew. Of course, if you'd like to donate a flat amount or a, you know, something above and beyond $6.95, you can do so by clicking on our Donate button, and you can securely support us by doing that. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. 
All right. Uh, we're talking about um, uh, Brian McLaren a little bit more here at uh, Fighting for the Faith. And um, Brian McLaren and uh, Spencer Burke have re- uh, basically, they're going for the next 10 weeks. Oh, this means I have a job security here. Uh, for the next 10 weeks, uh, they're going to be releasing a video a week talking about the, quote, 10 different questions that Brian McLaren is providing responses to in his book, A, quote, New Kind of Christianity. By the way, I want to point something out here. Um, Brian McLaren engages in uh, destructive higher criticism. And those of you who don't really, you know, who don't know Brian, how to read a Brian McLaren book, um, you don't read a Brian McLaren book by only reading what's in the main portion of his book. The real action in Brian McLaren's books, by the way, folks, is in his endnotes. Um, yeah, you've got to read his endnotes. Brian McLaren, in all of his earlier books, reveals far more about his theology in his endnotes than in his um, in in the in the main portion of the book, if you would. And so, one of the reasons why guys like me have known for a long time that this guy's a heretic is because we've mastered the art of reading his notes because his notes say so much about him and where he's getting stuff from and if you have if you have been reading his end notes you would have realized all along this guy is basically putting on a false front you know basically claiming that he's in a conversation and not really trying to come up with answers and yet all the time this is basically just a ploy to evangelize people to liberalism you know, rank liberalism and progress, so-called progressive theology. Uh, no, it's, yeah, that's see that thing. So, by the way, give you an example. I mean, here, here's the deal. Brian McLaren can actually you know, claim that he can read the book of Genesis and not see that man has fallen into sin. And, um, and so how does he explain the God of Genesis is, uh, you know, basically he sees the God of Genesis as really kind of an underdeveloped character, if you would, and uh, and so he doesn't have to believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. He doesn't believe that the book of Genesis gives us any kind of accurate picture of what God is really like. Instead, this is really a human effort uh, written to uh, describe God from a human point of view by people who are obviously Neanderthals in their thinking. Uh, footnote number 11 from uh, what chapter? Chapter 5. Uh, on page 268 in the back of the book, if you would. Let me read this little juicy little quote. Um, here we go. Uh, McLaren says, As we will see again when we read the story of Job, <laughs> in response to the authority question, boy, does he mangle Job, it, it, it may help us here to see God not simply as the, the real God, but as a character in a story. He's talking about the God of Genesis here. Seen and described unapologetically from a human point of view. Now, this character is thus rendered in starkly human terms, which excuse the character for displaying less emotional maturity than we might expect from an actual deity. This character uh, seems, if we're honest, rather limited in foresight, you know, threatening and then not imposing the death penalty when Adam and Eve sinned, uh, not anticipating Cain's violence to Abel, and somewhat insecure and threatened by emotional, uh, by human potential, worrying first that humans will become like us in Genesis 3.22, and then later that nothing will be impossible for them in uh, in the Tower of Babel story from Genesis 11.6. So basically, yeah, see, the, you don't have to believe that we're actually re- receiving real 
inerrant uh, revelation, God-breathed scriptures in the book of Genesis regarding God, because, I mean, there's some things that are troubling there. I mean, that God destroys the world in the flood. That God seems threatened by human potential, I mean, and, and seems to be uh, not very emotionally mature. And so that's the way Brian McLaren deals with it. So how? Yeah, that's how he brushes aside the God there. It's, see, that's, it's not that God is really into punishing and destroying and things like that. See, that's that was just a human impression of God that that showed that really displayed a lack of emotional maturity that apparently was running rampant among humans at the time. You know, because we've progressed so much farther. We, you know, we've ascended you know, you know, as a species. And so anyway, I just thought I would share that with you. So here's Brian McLaren and Spencer Burke waxing eloquent about chapter, uh, the question about um, the overarching narrative of the scripture, which, by the way, he claims, and falsely, by the way, that the, the that we've inherited some kind of a, lately, a late development about the, the overarching story of Scripture, and that it was really smuggled in Greco-Roman narrative of, you know, of, uh, of basically a platonic thought of, you know, the fall from perfection into the material world, and that there's salvation and, and perdition. He says that's a Greco-Roman narrative. The problem is, is that um, the earliest Christians, uh, you know, here's, first of all, read the New Testament. The New Testament makes it clear that we've fallen into sin and we're dead in trespasses and sin and that we have a savior and that there will be a judgment and, you know, things like that. Jesus himself teaches it. But see, in in McLaren's universe, that's just a a Greco-Roman narrative that we've put over the scriptures and that that's not really the the real narrative. Um, But what's, you know, but here's the deal is if you read the New Testament, the New Testament is clear that this is not a Greco-Roman narrative. This is the narrative of the scriptures. Because in Genesis, man falls, rebels against God. God, you know, basically, and God describes humanity as his thoughts are only evil all of the time. That's from the book of Genesis. And God destroys the world except for Noah and his family. And, um, and you know, and as you know, moving forward, what do we see starting in the book of, you know, basically in chapter three, we're following the line of the Messiah. We're following the line of the one promised by God in the garden, the one who would crush the head of the serpent who deceived Adam and Eve. And um, and um, and so the scriptures show us, especially especially if you read the book of Hebrews, read the book of Hebrews. And, and, and that's a New Testament interpretation of all of the sacrificial system set up by God on Mount Sinai, the Levitical priesthood, showing and pointing to Christ and his propitiatory uh, substitutionary death on the cross for our sins through his blood read the book of hebrews and and it just completely demystifies and shows brian mclaren to be an outright apostate rebellious liar about god furthermore when you read the writings of the apostolic fathers these are the uh the disciples of the disciples um in in the cove i've have the the clements uh letter to uh, Clement of Rome's epistle to the Corinthians. Fantastic work. Read that, and you'll see, yeah, you know what? The earliest Christians believed this, quote, Greco-Roman narrative, and this was long before Augustine, okay? You know, and it's not a Greco-Roman narrative. That's what he calls it, but it's it's just a label that he slaps on it in order to, you know, it's a straw man that he's trying to beat up on. The reality is, is that the Christian church has always believed that, 
of man's fall into sin, death, and the devil, Christ's redemption, propitiatory death, substitutionary atonement, and that trust and belief in Christ is what is how what God declares one to be righteous. Um, you know, just justifies them. That's what uh, the 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 term means there in the Greek. Justification is to be declared righteous by God. Uh, through Christ and his imputed righteousness, and that God is that Christ is going to return in glory to judge the living and the dead, and there are some who are going to spend an eternity as an eternal conscious torment in hell, which was never prepared for uh humanity. it was prepared for the devil and his angels, those who rebelled against a God who were uh, who sided with the devil, but men will go there. Uh, because they continue to reject God's mercy and kindness and love for us in Christ and his death on the cross. That's what the Christian church has taught from the beginning, and you see it so clearly, not only in the New Testament, but you see it clearly in uh, the writings of the Apostolic Fathers long, long before Augustine comes on the scene. And so McLaren, you know, his explanations are just... They don't have any weight. But let's listen to uh, Spencer Burke and Brian McLaren. Here we go. Okay, we're up with question number one. What is the shape of the biblical narrative? I call it the narrative question. What's the plot line or the narrative arc of the Bible? <laughs> you start off, and i got to tell you, you rattled my cage from the very beginning. Well, I, this is a deep question, and I, 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 it's kind of, I know that I'm, I'm treading on some very uh, sensitive areas with this. Mm. Now, people go, oh, here comes Brian McLaren. He started a whole new thing. But you're deeply rooted with some of this. Talk well, to me. I, well I, actually, this really derives from me being a pastor for 24 years, working with the Bible for sermons a couple times every week, and I always had the feeling that we had an alien narrative that we snipped pieces from the Bible and stuck on somebody else's narrative. And so this question really asks us to rediscover what the real narrative of the Bible is, the Jewish narrative into which Jesus comes. Now the question, the narrative... Where's the beginning? Yeah. So he claims this is a Jewish narrative, you know, that it's not man's fall into sin. It's man's ascent from hunter-gatherer to agriculturalist, you know, to city dweller to, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think our problem is we have not started with the Jewish story that the Bible starts with. We've started with a story that we... By the way, I challenge you, if you even for a second are tempted to believe McLaren here... Open the New Testament and flip over to the book of Hebrews and read it from beginning to end and see what you think. See if his ideas hold any merit. He actually imported from Greek philosophy and Roman politics. I call it the Greco-Roman narrative. And I think what we've done is cut and snipped and pasted verses from the Bible around an alien narrative. we got to get our narrative back. Mm -hmm. Now, when I go my family tree, I start with me. <laughs> well, that's the problem. You know what? I think I might I have an idea here. I might call up Bob DeWay. Bob DeWay on Critical Issues Commentary has recently done an entire series where he's working his way through the book of Hebrews. You know what? I think I need to give him a call. I not today, but uh, I might give him a call sometime in the, you know in the next few days. See if I can interview him. Just having him comment on this in light of what the Book of Hebrews says 
And, uh, and oh, that'll be just insightful. <clears throat> We're starting with the present and looking back. So uh, what I'm suggesting we've got to do is go back to the beginning and look forward. Um, I, I can show you. Yeah, yeah, I'll see. Um, so let's say, um, uh, you know, here is, here is uh, Jesus. He just drew an X in the dirt. So he's saying, here's Jesus. And then I don't actually see Jesus. I see Paul's view of Jesus. Okay, now did you hear that? This is really, really important. Okay, so he's drawn an X next to Jesus. And he says, I don't hear Jesus. I hear Paul's view of Jesus. What's the problem with that? The Apostle Paul wrote Scripture, not opinion. And by the way, this is all part of, you got to understand something about this. The Bible is a library and it contains different genres of writings. It contains poems, it, it contains historical narrative, it contains biography, it also contains prophecy, and it contains um, theological interpretation of historical events. Okay, keep this in mind. When we talk about doctrine and theology in the scriptures, that the the interpretive portions of it of, of in the Bible is it the, giving the theological interpretation of historical events. The Apostle Paul, in many of his letters, for instance, the Book of Romans, even the Book of Galatians, provides for us theological commentary on the historical narratives that we find in the scriptures. We all know that Jesus Christ was beaten, flogged, stripped naked, and crucified between two thieves with a crown of thorns pressed into his head, right? Now, listen, that happened to many people, thousands uh, of people. That that occurred, that, that particular thing happened to them. But Jesus, the, what we've learned in the in the epistles that interpret the historical narratives is that Jesus's crucifixion was unlike anybody else's crucifixion because there on the cross wasn't a criminal, but there on the cross was a perfectly righteous man who was sinless. He was not dying for his sins. He was dying for your sins and mine. He was our substitute. So we learn from the uh, from the interpretation, the theological interpretation of those events, breathed out and inspired by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul, what was really going on in those historical events. So here McLaren has somehow said, now what's happened is, is that when we look at the Apostle Paul, we see the Apostle Paul's view of Jesus. So we're already one step removed. Oh, no, we're not. Oh, no, we're not. Okay. He's driving a wedge between Paul and Jesus, which is a classic, classic liberal move. Why? The reason why is because they hate, hate, hate the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement and the exclusive claims of, of you know, the, the exclusiveness uh, of Christianity laid out in Paul's epistles. Paul was not a universalist by any stretch of the imagination. And if you listen, go back and listen to my interview with Jeremy Bauma, who spent time in this, in emergent circles, you will discover 
that these guys hate Paul. They don't consider his writings to be the inerrant word of God. They can't stand it. They are they are scandalized by the scandal of the cross, if you would. We continue. But I don't actually see Paul's view of Jesus. I see Augustine's view of Paul's view of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And then I see Aquinas's view of Augustine's view of Paul's. And then I see Luther's view. And then I see, you know, John Wesley's view or John Calvin's view or yeah. Benny Hinn's view. Or- Again, this is just silly, okay? Because I'm a Lutheran, all right? And I don't really spend a lot of time reading Luther. I just don't. Okay, I've read quite a bit of Luther, but I, for the most part, I don't spend a lot of time in Luther. I spend a lot of time in the Bible. I spend a lot of time in the scriptures. And as I'm reading the book of Romans, I'm not sitting there going, okay, now how did Luther read this again? No, I read the text and I go, wow, I'm seeing the same thing that Luther saw. I'm seeing the same thing that Augustine saw. It's right there in the text. See, he, this is just a, this is all designed to rattle you away from the biblical, the true biblical narrative, which has been taught. Not it's taught in the New Testament clearly, and it was believed and taught in the early Christian church long before Augustine. Or, uh, you know, whatever. And I look back through this line of sight back to Jesus. And what I'm recommending is that we that we take. Uh, I'm not recommending we forget all that. No. But I'm recommending we start at a different place. What if instead we say, "Here's Jesus. Let's go back and start with Abraham." Mm-hmm. Um, what's the story that unfolds from Abraham? Into that story comes Moses. And into that story comes David, and into that story comes the prophets, and into that story comes John the Baptist, and into that unfolding story comes Jesus. And if we try to... And yet, funny enough, he's sitting here suggesting something. Read Romans and Galatians, and you find out that Paul does that exact thing. He talks about Moses and Abraham and Jesus' place in that overall narrative. Paul does that. But what he's trying to do is disconnect you from Paul so that he can create whole cloth, a completely new narrative, uh, interpretation of the narrative that has no basis in historical Christianity. Put Jesus in his native environment. We have a very different vision of Jesus than if we look back at him from starting with ourselves. Now, it's interesting, with a different narrative, it's not different characters. No, it's the same characters, but we're trying to see them in the story that flows from the past to the present, instead of looking at the characters from a whole set of theological arguments that go from the present back to the past. Now, you start with this chapter. Why? Well, if we get this wrong, you see, this even comes before our discussions of the Bible mm-hmm. because we bring an assumption about what the big story is about. If we, if we are willing to loosen up on those assumptions and let the Bible itself generate a narrative for us, I think what that will do is open up immense new territory for us. It's- yeah, you know, I, I think the, the right thing to do here is basically say, stay tuned because um, I'm going to invite Bob DeWay on the program and we're going to uh, take a look at this uh, from the book of Hebrews, which basically rolls up uh, the Old Testament narrative and the whole sacrificial system and uh, points it all to Christ and his fulfillment on the cross. Stay tuned. Well, <laughs> 
<laughs> More to come. Good night. I mean, this guy is heresy a minute. All right, we are up on our second break. When we come back, I'm going to ask the question, is, uh, is, does Rick Warren practice Roman Catholic monastic mysticism? We're going to ask, answer that. We're going to take a look at the soundbite that might suggest that he does. And then we're going to dive into our sermon review, which will be from basically uh, a sermon preached by uh, Mark Driscoll to a bunch of pastors at the Radicalis Conference, and it's a good sermon. And ironically, he contradicts uh, Rick Warren during this uh, sermon, during this speech, and uh, I don't even think that uh, anyone could have saw it coming, and, and the, uh, the reason why he does is because Mark Driscoll holds a completely different theology than Rick Warren does, absolutely holds a completely different theology. So we'll talk about that on the uh, other side of the break. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, well, pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, pansy, turning photo-written music, you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Are you tired of lousy service? When you need help with repairs around the house, Angie's List members will help you decide which service companies to trust and which ones to avoid. Kiplinger said Angie's List is a virtual backyard fence with talk about the dry cleaner, the drywaller, and everything in between. With Angie's List, you get access to great local reviews on their website, live support through their call center, the award-winning Angie's List magazine, and access to their complaint resolution team, as well as discounts from highly rated service companies. If you'd like to find out more about Angie's List and their unbiased reviews of service companies and doctors in your area, then call them Toll-free at 877-225-0478. Again, that's 877-225-0478. Call Angie's List today, and you'll be done with lousy service forever. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Simple question before we dive into our sermon review. 
And that question is, um, does Rick Warren practice Roman Catholic monastic mysticism? Straightforward question. All right, the, the reason I'm asking is because of this particular quote from last week's Radicalis Conference. Listen in. What do you do when you're held captive by a fear? You know, when you're held captive by a fear. Well, let me give you a couple things to do. This is just free. This is not in the message. If you want to overcome fear, you practice the presence of Christ. You learn to practice the presence of Christ. And you remind Okay, so if you want to overcome fear, you practice the presence of Christ. What is that? Well, that's re- referring specifically back to uh, Peter Scazzaro's so-called emotionally healthy spirituality, which is nothing more than Roman Catholic counter-reformation at that, counter-reformation Roman Catholic monastic mysticism uh, designed, uh, developed by guys like Ignatius of Loyola, Brother Lawrence, those guys, okay, practicing the presence. And so Rick Warren is giving a nod here to Pete Scazzaro. Listen to this again. What do you do when you're held captive by a fear? You know, when you're held captive by a fear. Well, let me give you a couple things to do. This is just free. This is not in the message. If you want to overcome fear, you practice the presence of Christ. <clears throat> so does Rick Warren practice Roman Catholic monastic mysticism? I don't think that what he practices is as full-blown as um, Pete Scazzaro. I think he's just giving a nod here to his buddy, but... Uh, the problem is in giving a nod to his buddy, Pete Scazzaro, who was one of the speakers there at Saddleback. And by the way, <clears throat> one of the tracks that they had for the conference, when you, you know, if you were to show up at the Radicalis conference, every attendant, there would be meetings in the afternoon or lessons in the afternoon that were taught by other people who were not giving full-blown keynote addresses, but were uh, they were you know lesser-known characters, if you would. They didn't have the full stage but what you would do is is that you can take a different track you want to do the church planning track you want to do this track well there was an entire track set up for those who wanted to do the emotionally healthy spirituality track and so what rick warren here is giving a nod to his buddy pete scazzaro who is unashamedly unabashedly teaching roman catholic monastic mysticism which is nowhere taught in the bible and is basically postmodern pentecostalism so there's Rick Warren. If you want to overcome fear, you practice the presence of Christ. What's that? Well, that's referring to Pete Scazzaro's uh, and repackaging of Brother Lawrence's practicing the presence of God. <laughs> I wonder how he defines it. Listen. You learn to practice the presence of Christ, and you remind yourself that he's always with you, and you talk to God constantly. I talk to him all the time. Every major decision I've had to make at Saddleback in the last 30 years, I was scared to death to do, but I did it anyway because I happen to believe you don't let fears dominate your life. You do the right thing, not the fearful thing. So there you go. That, that, that answers my question. So does he practice it? Well, he sure is. He's promoting it by the name that uh, the Roman Catholic monastics call it. What do you think? We'd love to get your feedback. I mean, is this just a... I don't think it's... How do I put it? It's This is not innocent uh, because Pete Scazzaro is absolutely deceiving people and Rick Warren has no business promoting Roman Catholic monastic mysticism. All right, it is time for our sermon review, which means I've got to cue up the sermon review music here. 
The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Uh, this particular sermon isn't really a sermon, but it is kind of a sermon because it's based upon a sermon that Driscoll preached at his church. Kind of modified for a different audience, though. The audience is the Saddleback audience at the Radicalis Conference, so this is Mark Driscoll preaching and teaching to other pastors. You are going to hear the gospel. This is an intense keynote address. And what's odd is that, well, actually, telling the fireworks, well, here's the deal. Mark Driscoll, quite unintentionally, absolutely comes out of the gate contradicting everything that Rick Warren said in the keynote ahead of him. Why? Because Rick Warren twisted Luke chapter 4 and turned it into the social gospel and that we had to do, you know, do all these causes. Driscoll flips that on its on his head, on its head and just comes at it hard from the the cross, from the gospel. And uh, says stuff that absolutely flat out contradicts Rick Warren. Did he intend to do it? No. Was he trying to be pugnacious? No. Rosebro does that. But uh, Driscoll wasn't trying to be. But the thing is, is that Driscoll holds a different theology than Warren. And this comes out just in spades. And you'll you'll hear it. All right, let me hang on. Oh, this is my favorite part of this, uh, the ukulele version. That. So, uh, without any further ado, here is Mark Driscoll from the Radicalis Conference on, you know, well, I don't even know what the name of the lecture is, but it's really good. Hang on, here we go. Go ahead and take a seat. I want to sincerely thank Pastor Rick and the staff for letting me join you. A few uh, comments by way of preface. Uh, I'll be talking on the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and I'm speaking of the cross in terms of the dual event of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, one doesn't work without the other. Um, I want to say for those of you who are pastors and teachers and ministry leaders as well, there is a, a very tragic trend that happens, and that is that one generation believes something, the next generation assumes it, the next generation forgets it, and the next generation denies it. And that's what happens with truth, from believing to assuming to forgetting to denying. And sometimes that happens even in the course of one generation if things are expedited. And so what we want to do is make sure that your people don't assume anything about the cross and that as leaders we don't assume anything about the cross. And so it's not just what we believe, it's what we are excited about and what we emphasize. Oh, this is such a great point. <clears throat> There's a saying out there, and I am not the author of it, and I think somebody sent me the, who the author was, but the quote goes like this, a gospel that is assumed is a gospel that is denied. Plain and simple. If you're assuming the gospel rather than proclaiming it, if you're assuming the cross rather than proclaiming it, you might as well be denying it, okay? And Driscoll, right out of the gate, is going to. He says he's going to talk about Christ's death and crucifixion and his resurrection. Says the two don't go together. Talks about how we need to emphasize the cross, not assume it. Oh, this is great stuff. So much of ministry is not just what we believe, but it's what we're excited about and what we emphasize. 
And if we are excited about the cross of Jesus and we emphasize the cross of Jesus, people will not be able to assume, forget, and or ultimately deny the work of Jesus on the cross. And so that's my hope today, because what I want for us is to have churches and ministries that are cross-centered, not cause-centered. Cause-centered churches want to do what Jesus did without the power that Jesus gives. This is where he just completely contradicted Warren. Let me back that up. Listen again. And so that's my hope today, because what I want for us is to have churches and ministries that are cross-centered, not cause-centered. Rick Warren, in the keynote just ahead of this one, and we reviewed this uh, that one on yesterday's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Go back and listen. I turned Luke chapter 4, where Jesus announces the passage that he was fulfilling from Isaiah, that he came to preach good news to the poor, set the captives free, give sight to the blind, all that kind of stuff. Jesus was, it's all about him. Rick Warren flipped that on its head and turned, turned that gospel passage into a law passage and talked about all the different causes that you're supposed to be a part of if you want to have a ministry like Jesus. The problem is, is that that passage isn't about the things you've got to do. It's about what Jesus did for you. And so here Rick Warren is talking about all these causes that you have to be a part of. And what was missing from his keynote? The cross. So out comes Mark Driscoll in the in the very next keynote. There wasn't even a break between Warren and Driscoll. I was watching this thing live and going, you've got to be kidding me. And I tweeted it out at the time. I said, Driscoll just contradicted Warren. Just absolutely contradicted him. And Driscoll did. Not on purpose, but here's the reason why. Driscoll doesn't assume the cross. Warren, I think, is a closet liberal. Okay, And I think there's a strong case to be made there. He, 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 he gives lip service to the cross, and every time he tries to, quote, preach it, it ends up coming out as some kind of weird, sappy, hallmark, greeting card sentimentality. It goes something like this. When, when Warren preaches it, it sounds like, you know, when... God couldn't stand the thought of living without you for all of eternity. And so he, he, he went to the cross and he spread out his arms and he says, I love you this much. I just can't be without you. That's what, when, when Warren preaches the cross, that's what it sounds like. That's not what we're going to hear from Driscoll. Okay. So here's the deal. Warren quote assumes the cross. And when he does preach it, it's doesn't even sound like it's natural for him. You know, when it does come up. And, you know, he's all about preaching for obedience, so to speak. Here, Driscoll will be preaching for an obedience that comes through a focus on the gospel and the cross. An obedience that is a fruit of faith. And so here, Driscoll just absolutely contradicted Warren. Very fascinating to be watching this. Cause-centered churches want to do what Jesus did without the power that Jesus gives. And so they become excited about generosity, but not because Jesus was generous in giving us his life. Or they become excited about evangelism, not excited about evangelism, because through the cross there is forgiveness of sin made available for all. 
And so whatever your ministry is, it cannot be cause-centered. It has to be cross-centered. And if it's cross-centered, it will end up pursuing the causes that Christ would have for it by the power that Christ gives to it. Oh, great point. Exactly. It's this, when you preach the cross, it's not like an either-or proposition. You either preach the cross or you preach uh, you know, things like you know, you know, involvement in serving your neighbor in different ways like the poor and the needy and the, and the enslaved and things like that. When you preach the cross, automatic fruit of faith, automatic fruit of that cross preaching would be this type of stuff. You, you can't help but be. But if all you preach is causes and without and no cross, that's not Christianity. Uh, so I'll pray, and that's my big objective, that we would have cross-centered ministries, that people know we're excited about the cross, that we emphasize it because we believe in it. Father God, I do pray against the enemy of servants and their works and effects. And God, for those of us who are Christians and ministry leaders, some of us are so familiar with the cross that we're not devastated by it. God, I ask for the Holy Spirit to, in a fresh way, help us to come back to the cross of Jesus Christ, to reflect on the cross of Jesus Christ, to, by some measure of grace, feel, feel the torment and torture of Jesus in our place for our sins. Uh, so that, Father God, we would understand that you, you cannot love us anymore and that because of Jesus, you will not love us any less that we might walk in that freedom and share that good news with others. So we ask for this grace in Jesus' good name. Amen. Now, when it comes to the cross, I think one of the things that is difficult for us is that we do not see crucifixion. The Bible gives scant details about the cross of Jesus Christ, I believe in large part because they were happening frequently and publicly in the days of the writing of the New Testament. And so for those who had witnessed a crucifixion, the details were absolutely devastating and unforgettable. But for us, we tend not to see it. And so we have to revisit some of the details of crucifixion to fully appreciate it. And I tell you this because what we don't want to do is just make the cross an addendum to our theology. Jesus died for your sins and move right on. We want to unpack that, slow that down, allow people to feel that demonstration of affection from God through the sacrifice of his son. Uh, here is a, a brief image that I wanted to show with you. Uh, this is what crucifixion looks like. And sometimes the sanitized version on a Christian t-shirt or a poster or even just the wearing of a cross as a Christian symbol doesn't fully articulate the horror of crucifixion. Now, what you don't see is at the time that this was happening, he's got a full-blown picture of a guy playing Jesus, and you know the guy has been whipped and scourged and is just a bloody mess. Think the passion of the Christ. Think that part where you have Jesus on the cross, and it's not that you know he's sitting there and there's a little bit of blood dripping here and there. We're talking about full-blown trauma, open wounds. This is going to get graphic, and you need to hear this. See, now we've moved from a theology of something to a reality of someone. You feel it, right?
The guys can take the images down. Let me explain the history of crucifixion to you. It started with impaling insofar as we can tell about 800 years before the birth of Christ. So you can imagine a large stake in the ground first run through the midsection of a human being and then they are literally filleted, left hung on an impaled stick. This continued developing. If you you unleash human depravity and just let people do whatever their fallen, demonically inspired nature can do. They end up doing horrendous things to one another. Um, Crucifixion was perfected over time. Men would compete to see how they could enforce more damage on the body, more psychological terror, more suffering. The worst kinds of men would compete. They would find creative ways to inflict the most pain. This all culminated with the Persians starting to, in about 500 BC, practice crucifixion with a crossbar. Because that increased the suffering and the public horror. It was ultimately something that continued all the way up until the Roman Emperor Constantine in about 300 AD. But those who perfected it were the Romans. The Romans were particularly skilled in crucifixion. This, this was their specialization. And, and they, they crucified people frequently. On the day that Spartacus fell in battle, they crucified in one day, if you can even fathom this, 6,000 who were loyal to him along a 120-mile stretch of highway. This is state-sponsored terror. This is the way of the government telling you, don't follow in their beliefs and behavior or you'll suffer their same fate. Jesus, likely as a young boy, witnessed a crucifixion around 4 AD. There was an uprising around the death of King Herod, and there was a mass crucifixion of many Jews. And so Jesus likely saw this as a boy. The historian Josephus called it, quote, the most wretched of deaths. Cicero said that Roman citizens shouldn't even speak of crucifixion because it was too barbarous for them to even mention. That's why it was often not done on Roman citizens. Additionally, the Jews from Deuteronomy 21 considered anyone hung on a tree, what? Cursed of God. So one thing that all cultures completely agreed upon in the New Testament era was the shameful, horrific nature of crucifixion. And a word was literally invented to explain the horror of crucifixion. And if you've heard the word excruciating, what that literally means is from the cross. It's from the cross. Okay, let me point something out here. The, you know, the Jews who say that anyone who's hung on a tree is cursed, okay, that all plays into the doctrine of penal substitution. And I want to point something out here. Those of you who are familiar with Mark Driscoll's history know that he was recruited by Doug Paget early on to be part of the emerging conversation. Mark Driscoll's history has him squarely involved with and part of the early days of 
Terra Nova and Emergent Village. And what has happened is, is that he has publicly repudiated the teaching of Brian McLaren, Tony Jones, Doug Padgett, and these guys, and come out and said that they are liberal heretics. What's interesting is the trajectory, he, the trajectory he's on is completely different than the trajectory that uh, McLaren, uh, Jones, Paget, and the emergence are on. That being said, I need to make something clear here. Okay, I don't give a blanket approval to everything that uh, Driscoll says. Just like I don't give a blanket approval to everything I say. Now you're sitting there going, but you're in control of what you say. Yeah, I understand that. You always have to test what I say against the word of God. That being said, one of my critiques of, of uh, Driscoll, even though he, you're going to hear this amazing gospel from him, is that he's, he's a theological hybrid. He has a synthetic theology. He both affirms the, the, the doctrines of the Reformation uh, and um, Roman Catholic monastic mysticism and you know contemplative mysticism and spirituality. My critique of Driscoll is that on the one hand, he preaches the gospel, and on the other hand, he promotes practices that actually undermine and work against the gospel that he preaches. And I think he's inconsistent in his theology. But I always praise God when I hear him preaching the gospel, because when he does, he doesn't hold anything back. And so my big critique, and I think the right way to look at Mark Driscoll is, is that he is a Christian brother who has some heterodox practices that he's promoting on his resurgence blog and, and, uh, and things that he's promoting that, that actually don't fit with the doctrines of Sola Scriptura and the gospel that he preaches. They actually undermine it. And so on one sense, he understands and promotes and proclaims the true gospel. And on the other hand, he's also pragmatic and adopting practices that are contradictory to that gospel. So you have to be careful when you're dealing with Driscoll. You don't want, just like anybody else, though, just like me, you always have to compare what he says and what he proclaims and what he teaches and what he does to the clear teaching of the word of God. And if I could sit down and have a face-to-face -face interview with Driscoll, I, you know, I would ask him straight up, why is it that you promote these mystic, this, this contemplative practices that contradict the gospel that you're so proud of and proclaim? That's what I would do with him. And this was not done privately and respectfully. This was done publicly and shamefully. People were crucified in public gathering areas, imagining yourself going to the local park or the mall or the grocery store and their men are crucified. This was state-sponsored terror. You wouldn't be emotionally prepared for it. You'd be going about your day, venturing to some place, and ultimately you would see someone crucified. Absolutely horrific, shocking, and unexpected. Sometimes the body would hang on the cross for upwards of nine days. There are reports historically that crucifixion could last as long as nine days. I was in Haiti um, the week uh, of the, uh, the earthquake. I came a few days after it occurred, the first 
major quake with churches helping churches, trying to raise money to help churches in Haiti. And one thing I have never experienced and I'll never forget is what the smell and taste of a dead, dying, decomposing body smells like. Nothing like it. I couldn't get the taste out of my throat for days. I brushed my teeth over and over and over. So many of these churches had fallen and the members were trapped inside and the bodies are decomposing and bloated. To be around a crucified person was to see an absolute horror. And if they were dead and still hanging, as was sometimes the case, it was to actually smell and taste the decomp in the body. People are absolutely horrified by even the thought of it. Imagine that being a somewhat regular part of your normal life course and experience. Now, what seems particularly unusual is that Christians very early on started taking with Tertullian, the church father, crucifixion and the cross as the symbol of our faith. Christians started making the sign of the cross. They started wearing the cross and putting it on their home and in their home. And for a few thousand years, it has remained, despite so much change, the continual symbol of our faith. It literally is the crux of all that we believe. Martin Luther rightly said, our theology is the cross. That's it. That is what we believe. So as we transition to the crucifixion of Jesus, I want to slowly unpack for you the details. It begins ultimately with the celebration of Passover, where God's wrath passes over those whose faith is in him as they await the bloodshed of his son, Jesus Christ. As well, we know that he was betrayed by a friend. I think sometimes we overlook that fact. Judas Iscariot becomes almost a caricature of that which is completely evil and demonically inspired. But he's also someone that Jesus loved and spent years with and treated as a friend and fed and instructed. Have you had that experience of betrayal? I mean, that in and of itself, is it not true? Ministry leader can be devastating for weeks Months, years, someone that you love, that you know, that you were close to, that you were perhaps even working in ministry with, someone that you had given yourself to utterly betrays you. If you felt that, that's where Jesus begins with that kind of devastating betrayal. We then know that he went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. His disciples, as you know, slept. And he was in such torment with the cross set before him that the Bible says he was literally sweating drops of blood. Medical doctors will tell you this is reserved for those under the most extreme duress. The body is in absolute chaos at that moment. The pain is unreal emotionally. He is betrayed with a kiss. He is arrested. He is blindfolded and beaten by a mob of men. Any of you abuse victims, you've been beaten. Did you grow up in that home? Did you have that dad? There's a lot that's going on here emotionally for Jesus and physically and spiritually and mentally. 
They're trying to destroy him in every way. He's run through a series of false trials. Liars are brought in. Their testimony does not agree. He's kept up all night. He is absolutely exhausted. And the Bible simply says that then they took him and had him scourged. That's all that it says. That's all that it says. Now, scourging was so horrific that it often, in and of itself, killed the victim. Um, If you'll throw up the picture again of the scourging, I, I want to explain what happens. The way it would happen in a scourging is that the man's body would be, next one, laid out. Usually the arms tied above the head so that the back and the shoulders and the legs were fully exposed. There would then be two soldiers, usually one on each side, holding something called a flagrum or a cat of nine tails. It's a handle, straps of leather proceeding from it. At the end, there would be metal balls to tenderize the flesh as you would a steak. As well, there would be hooks made out of glass or metal. They would sink into the man's flesh and the soldier would give a tug to ensure that the hooks were deeply embedded in the flesh. And then he would literally just rip the flesh off of the man's body. And the soldiers would take turns, one from each side. This would cut through the skin, it would cut down into the bones. In extreme cases, a rib would actually go flying off of the man's body when the soldier pulled the, fla- the flagrum back. Skin is torn, muscle is torn, tendon is torn. The lungs are bruised. Now we're down into the deep organs, massive internal trauma. The body goes into shock. There is severe blood loss. The heart is straining to pump blood because it is taxed to its maximum capacity. This is on top of a sleepless night and a beating This is on top of an emotional betrayal. That's why Isaiah says that his appearance would be marred beyond human likeness. That you wouldn't even recognize Jesus. And I I want to explain this to you so that we don't just turn the cross into a series of theological arguments but we let it remain a historical fact in all of its horror. Can remove the image. The crown of thorns was then placed on Jesus' head in mockery. And over that bloodied, barren, traumatized, exposed back was laid what? Probably the crossbar. The, the main beam would have likely remained in place and he was likely forced to carry the crossbar. This could weigh one, 200 pounds, roughly hewn timber on the open, devastated back that's in trauma. He's forced to carry it a long distance to his place of crucifixion. Blood is dripping. People are mocking. This is a public spectacle. We read in the scriptures that under the weight of the cross, Jesus fell. 
Now you've got to imagine your arms being stretched out and you falling face and chest first onto the pavement with one to 200 pounds crashing down on your heart and your chest cavity. Medical doctors that have done the investigation say this is the equivalent of a high-speed head-on collision where the driver is thrown into the steering wheel without the deployment of an airbag. That at this point, it is likely that Jesus had a chest contusion, had an aneurysm, the heart is under great duress, it has now been devastated. Without help, he will die from these injuries. He needs to go to a doctor immediately if there is to be any hope for him to live. But there was no kind of mercy or compassion for Christ. So he's forced to carry this continually until finally someone helps him because though he is young and strong, he cannot bear this cross with his heart and body in that condition. He then arrives at his place of crucifixion. Jesus, who himself was a carpenter that had driven many nails, was laid upon the wooden cross beam. Large nails, think railroad spikes, driven through the most sensitive nerve centers on the body, the hands and the feet. The body is convulsing uncontrollably. The nerve endings are in absolute terror. He is suffering incredibly. This is public. People are jeering him and spitting upon him and dishonoring him. Insofar as we can tell, his mother is there. Mothers, put yourself there. That's your son. This is absolutely shameful. There was a painting that was found around the second century that showed the Roman interpretation of the crucifixion of Jesus. It has a a man's body crucified, but instead of a man's head, it has the head of a jackass. It says, Alexamenos worships his God. That's how Jesus was perceived and treated. His cross is lifted up. And unlike other men, he didn't retaliate. He didn't curse. He didn't seek vengeance. Some would become violent. They would spit and urinate on the crowd that gathered beneath them. Because see, the worst kind of people would show up for the crucifixion. Those who gloried in the suffering of others. Those who enjoyed seeing pain and suffering and death. It was a sport for them have a few drinks, show up, and mock the bleeding, crucified man for a few hours till you could get him to respond and then just spit on him, throw rocks at him, make fun of him. When his body eventually becomes incontinent, which is almost assured, and the sweat and the urine and the blood and the feces and the tears are dripping off his body, tell some coarse jokes make fun of him. Jesus didn't do that. Instead, to the end, Jesus is doing ministry. He's actually having an evangelistic conversation with a thief at one side. 
Eventually, Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? More painful than anything Jesus experienced, I believe that was the moment of greatest suffering. The theologians will say that the Father turned his back on the Son. That in that moment, Christ took upon himself our sin. And I believe it was that spiritual separation that was perhaps the most devastating of all. More than the shame, more than the horror, more than the stripping and beating and flogging and beard pulling and crown of thorns and, and, and nails through the hands and the feet. See, Jesus is fully man. Do not diminish the horror and the pain and the suffering of the cross. But he's also fully God. And when he suffers, he suffers spiritually when the Father turns his back on the Son and the Son says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What happens next in the account, according to the Scripture, is that Jesus says, I thirst. Do you remember this? And they take a stick and there's a sponge on the end and it says they sopped it in a wine vinegar and they stuffed it or tried to stuff it in his mouth. I had always read that part of the account and assumed that that was one moment of compassion on behalf of those who were crucifying him. That was until I was uh, doing a tour in Turkey. And if you could throw up that photo of the public restroom, that would be helpful. I'll show you what I found in Turkey. Um, This is actually an archaeological excavation in Ephesus, the epicenter of early Christian mission where Luke and Paul and others worked from. This was uh, an ancient public restroom. And so these were actually toilets where people would sit on marble. And there was an aqueduct that would go underneath to cleanse the channel. And if you can look in front of where they would be seating, there was a trough of water. And you would use that to cleanse yourself after you went to the bathroom in the public restroom. And uh, studying this with an archaeologist, what inevitably started happening is the slaves, those who were the most poor, they found a job. They would get a sponge, put it on a stick, sop it in the water, and then use it to go underneath that open area under the toilet to clean the people who had gone to the bathroom. And over time, they realized that they were spreading disease from one person to the next, so they started sopping the sponge in wine vinegar. Jesus is on the cross saying things like, Father, forgive them. Today you'll be with me in paradise. And to shut him up, they take what I believe was that sponge. The sponge that had been used on a stick to scrub those who had used the public restroom And they try and stuff that into the mouth of Jesus to shut him up so that he could preach no more. So Jesus dies with that taste on his mouth. And when he speaks words of grace and love and compassion and mercy and hope, he does so to his enemies. Those who had just shouted, crucify him, crucify him. He says that with that taste on his mouth. At this point, Jesus is near death. It is commonly believed that when someone is crucified, 
they die by asphyxiation. There was a CSI episode where Gil Grissom, it was called Double Cross, he went into a church and someone was crucified. They were hung with ropes and they ultimately died. He said rightly of asphyxiation that as you're crucified, the body cannot retain air in the lungs because of the weight of the body. And so eventually you start passing in and out of consciousness until ultimately you can no longer push yourself up on your feet, pull yourself up on your hands, and you suffocate to death and you die by asphyxiation. I do not believe that's why Jesus died. Many preachers would tell you he died though. I don't believe that's the way that he died. Because what we hear is that Jesus cries out in a what? Loud voice. That's not a man who is dying of asphyxiation. His air is still present in his lungs. He cries out, it is finished. I believe what had happened was that Jesus was having a heart attack. That from the strain on the body and the crossbar collapsing on his chest, the contusion, the aneurysm, the trauma, that what would have happened, it likely punctured the heart and it was leaking into the sack around it so that your heart has blood in it and water around it and the blood is leaking. He's having a heart attack. He feels it. He knows this is the end. This explains why after Jesus does die, they put a spear into his side to ensure that he is in fact dead. And what comes out? Blood and water that they had commingled. That Jesus probably died literally and figuratively speaking of a broken heart. Now, That is the historical evidence of the death of Jesus. And what is perhaps most curious is that you and I who are Christian, we would say that this is our what? This is our good news. This is our good news. And every year we celebrate it on Good Friday. And on Sundays we celebrate it at the Lord's table, communion. Why? Why would we say this is good news? Well, the Bible moves from the historical facts to their theological meaning with a little word for. Isaiah 53, 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his stripes we are healed Romans 4.25, he was delivered up for our trespasses. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Corinthians 15.3, the summary statement of the gospel, Christ died for our sins. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. The wage for sin is death. And Jesus dies, as you know, not for his own sin, but for ours. Martin Luther called this the great exchange, that two things happened at the cross. 
2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way, God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's the good news. It's twofold. The cross, don't forget this, the cross is something done by you and the cross is something done for you. Now here's what Christ did. He died in our place for our sins. And so there's this double imputation. This is important, this next point that he's making about the double imputation. A lot of people, when they preach the cross, they forget the imputed part. When we talk about penal substitution, one of the things we talk about is that our sins are forgiven, that Christ dies in our place for our sins. He takes on the wrath of God for us. What's missing in a lot of people's conversation about the cross and about justification and about the atonement is this double imputation. This is a great point that he's about to make. Listen very carefully. It's substitution. See, what happened with our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden, there was God the creator and Adam and Eve who were created, and they substituted themselves for God. When Satan said, you don't need to honor, glorify, serve, and submit to God, you can be your own God, they believed the lie instead of the truth, and they substituted themselves for God. What happens at the cross is a reverse substitution. Jesus takes our place and our sin and our condemnation and our shame and our suffering and the wrath of God, and he dies. He substitutes himself in our place. And so what we see is that Martin Luther is right. It is the great exchange. All of our sin goes to Jesus. Do you really believe that? Dear friend, it is of no use to preach a gospel you do not use. There is nothing to add to the cross to atone for your sin. I've heard people say things like, I know God forgives me, I cannot forgive myself. Then you have made the tragic error of your first parents. You have again substituted yourself into the position of God. And even though Jesus would die for your sins, you can't forgive yourself because you've made yourself into a God above Jesus. And though Jesus gives forgiveness, you don't. Jesus took upon himself all of your sin, the sins you haven't even committed yet, sins of thought, word, deed, sins of commission where you did what you ought not do, sins of omission where you have not done what you were supposed to do. And most Christian sins are sins of omission. They're not doing what they're supposed to do. It's not that they're doing what they're not supposed to do. They're not doing what they're supposed to do. And Jesus died in your place for your sins. He took upon himself all your sins, omission and commission, past, present, and future. There is nothing more to be done. When Jesus says, it is finished, that means that the work of salvation is completed. Don't add to it anything. For the Galatians, it was circumcision. For the Charismatics, it is speaking in tongues. For the Baptists, it is baptism. Don't add anything to it. For some, it is a certain translation of the Bible or a certain theological system or a certain kind of lifestyle and practice. 
Don't add anything to the cross for the forgiveness of sins. It's all finished. It's Jesus' work without any contribution of our own. And religion is that nefarious attempt to add to what Jesus has done as if we have anything to offer. And so our sin goes to Jesus, and here is the great exchange, the double imputation. Our sin is imputed to Jesus, and his righteousness is imputed to us. See, if our sin were only forgiven, we would still be without righteousness. And then we'd be left to be nothing but religious, trying to become righteous. So I will do better, and I will try harder, and I will give deeper so that I can merit righteousness in the sight of God. And religion is all, the one thing that all religion shares in common is a desire for righteousness that is something that we achieve rather than receive. Great, great point. This is solid stuff here. It's not of grace, it's of works. Somebody say, yes, my people need to hear this. No, the ministry leader needs to hear it first. Because ministry can become for us a means to obtain in our own wrong understanding righteousness. I'll hit three things in closing. My time is short. Number one. Your ministry is from your righteousness, not for your righteousness. Now, listen carefully. He's not saying it's coming from your self-righteousness. He's talking about your righteousness that is imputed to you that is Christ's righteousness. Pay close attention. This is a great point. You understand the difference? Your ministry is from your righteousness, given to you by Christ, not for your righteousness. Some you say, I believe that. Then why, when the attendance is down, are you sad? Why, when the program fails, are you devastated? Why, when the attendance is up, are you joyful? Why, when the giving is up, are you happy? It may be that your righteousness is tethered to your results. See, there's only three ways to get an identity. What you do what's been done to you, or what Christ does for you. If your identity is in what you do, when you're doing well, you'll be proud, which is a sin. When you're doing poorly, you'll be depressed, which under those conditions for that reason is a sin as well. If it's by what has been done to you, then if you are abused or addicted at some point in your past, you are not really a new creation in Christ. Who you are is basically who you were, and there is a stain on your identity that abides with you forever. You live under guilt and condemnation and shame for things you've done. The third option is to have your identity not in what you've done and not what has been done against you, but in what Christ has done for you. And if your identity is that in Christ I am righteous, I have nothing to prove to anyone, I'm not on the performance treadmill of nickels and noses and results and consequences, then what that allows me to do is stop using people and start loving them. 
That's right. You are hearing this at a seeker-driven, purpose-driven conference. Mark Driscoll taking Christ's righteousness and the cross and running it through to a bunch of people who are very results-driven, who think that um, the way you can tell that God is blessing their ministry is if their church is growing and he's slaughtering that idol in front of them as they're listening. Beautifully done. And stop using ministry to merit my righteousness and start enjoying ministry as an opportunity to share this good news with others who not only have a sin problem, but a righteousness problem. For some of them, it's religious righteousness. They're trying to make God happy, not knowing that in Christ he is. Trying to make God love them, not knowing that in Christ he does. Trying to make God care for them, not realizing that in Christ the love of God has been poured out. And for some, it is informal religion and righteousness. This is where people become very cause-oriented. From secular religion, which is environmental activism and all kinds of causes, to that which is religious activism, if it's for righteousness, not from righteousness, it's repugnant. It's, it's wood, hay, stubble that'll all burn. It's in vain. It's not to the glory of God. And it's not done with a sense of joy. And it's not that kind of sustainable, ongoing lifestyle. You grow weary, you lose heart. But if it's from your righteousness, I tell you, there's a joy there. There's a freedom there. There's an opportunity to love people instead of using them. There's an opportunity to to have the ministry be a place where the grace of God is offered freely regardless of the results, because your righteousness is intact. Number two, when you suffer, God is not punishing you. He's honoring you. We don't believe this. What invariably happens when we suffer, particularly in ministry, have you been betrayed like Jesus was? Have you been opposed? Have you had the crowd against you? Have you been falsely accused like Jesus was? Have you suffered? Okay, notice here, his theology of the crowd is the exact opposite of Rick Warren's. Go back and listen to yesterday's sermon review. Let me play this again. Listen. What invariably happens when we suffer, particularly in ministry, have you been betrayed like Jesus was? Have you been opposed? Have you had the crowd against you? Have you- Notice in Driscoll's theology, it's not just that Jesus dazzled the crowds and lots of people throng to him here in his theology he keeps in mind that it was the crowd yelling crucify him regarding jesus have you been falsely accused like jesus was have you suffered like he was stripped have you had that which was yours taken was your dignity robbed When that happens, you can think, God is punishing me. Friends, does God punish his children? He doesn't. 
It would be unjust for God the Father to punish God the Son and punish you. See, God will, as a good father, he'll correct you and chastise you and mature you, but he doesn't punish you. See, what happens is when life gets harder, ministry gets harder, you are suffering. If you think that God is punishing you, you run from him, not to him. Because all of a sudden he is the abuser. When you're suffering, know that God is not punishing you. He's honoring you. He's allowing you to experience what Jesus experienced. He's allowing you, and I don't even understand this verse, but it says in Hebrews that Jesus was perfected through his suffering. I don't even know what that means. But we are also similarly perfected through our suffering. So when you're suffering, don't think, God, why do you punish me? I think, God, thank you for honoring me. With this great gift of suffering, that I might more fully appreciate the Lord Jesus and long for the day of his coming when he wipes all the tears from my eyes. And until then, there will be tears. And number three, because of the cross, you are clean. You are clean. You're clean. That's why God's people in the Bible always wear white. They're clean. It's the one thing that every rape victim wants by taking a shower after the abuse. Cleansing. It's the one thing that Jesus gives. Cleansing. We confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness. You're clean. In Christ, you're clean. So, come clean. Confess your sins to God and those who need to know. And then live clean by the righteousness of Christ. I worry about some of you. I worry about some of you. Because you teach a cross you do not use. And so I'm sad. Listen to this point. They teach a cross they do not use. The, oh, man, this is going to hit really close to home with them. Listen. And, and to us. Jesus wants you to know that he does love you. He does forgive you. He has taken your sin. He identifies with your suffering. And he loves you very much. And he invites you to enjoy his righteousness. Amen? I'll bring out Pastor Rick. He wanted... All right, that was Mark Driscoll's keynote. (laughs) Really great. Preaches the cross, Christ and him crucified, and really helps us, even here in the 21st century, to regain an understanding of what that means. And then he takes Christ's cross and his crucifixion for our sins, extrapolates that out theologically all the way to the ministry of those who are listening to him that day, these seeker-driven pastors who are so caught up in numbers, crowds, nickels, and noses. And... 
calls that sin and calls them instead to Christ and him crucified. Good stuff. Stuff that we all need to hear. I don't even think I need to add to it. Just need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is a listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can join us and partner with us uh, in this important ministry by visiting our website, and that's fightingforthefaith.com, and clicking on one of our uh, buttons there that says Join Our Crew. We're still about halfway to our, a little over halfway to our goal of having a thousand people join our crew so that we can meet our annual budget every month and continue to pay our bills so we continue to bring this important outreach to you as well as to the world. And so join our crew if you haven't done so. And when you do, you get access to our Pirate Cove, growing treasure trove of theological resources. Good stuff there. So visit fightingforthefaith.com. Click on join our crew. It is a mere $6.95 a month. Of course, if you'd like to donate uh, above and beyond that or a flat amount, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what would you think? What would you think? We'd love to get your feedback. You can email me. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ in his vicarious death on the cross for your sins. Amen. Amen.